Welcome to NoSpinHomilies.com. I invite you to join me to reflect upon the homilies of Father Dan. Father Dan will challenge us to open our heart, mind, and soul to the Word of God. Father Dan will draw upon sacred scripture along with art, literature, and the lives of the saints to help us grow in our love and knowledge of the scripture. In doing so, we can become the living Word of God in this world. Now it is my pleasure to present to you No Spin Homilies. Today our church celebrates the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, in the first few years of our early church, the apostles found this event deeply embarrassing. The first century Christians did not know how to understand or explain why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, the very first few years of our, the beginning of our early church, the apostles avoided this event. They didn't want to talk about it because they were deeply embarrassed by it. If there is any event in Jesus' ministry or life that all four of the gospel writers should have excluded, it should have been this. Jesus submitting himself to this baptism, it makes no sense. Even John the Baptist in the gospel for today, he doesn't understand it. He tried to prevent it, it said. He says to Jesus, you come to me, I should come to you to be baptized. See, John knows exactly who Jesus is as he is kneeling before him. And John is f so flustered by it, he doesn't understand. Well, realize Jesus truly is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And by his very nature of being God, he cannot sin. And so it begs the question, what the heck is going on here? That's why the very first years of our early church as it began, no one talked about it. The apostles thought it was a very embarrassing event. They avoided it completely. They refused to explain it. And yet, notice in the gospel how it begins. It says, Jesus sought out John for the baptism. Jesus knew exactly what John was doing, and therefore Jesus wanted this baptism. He initiated it himself. But again, it doesn't make any sense. If there's any event in Jesus's life that should have been left out in the Gospels, it should have been this. And yet, this baptism is found in all four of the Gospels. Now think of it. When we begin something, a new job, a new friendship, What's our first inclination? To put the best foot forward, right? To impress our boss or people. Well, it appears as Jesus is beginning his ministry in his first public life, he's doing just the opposite. He's putting his worst foot forward as he begins. And yet, isn't this exactly what the Bible does? It has these ironies, these twists and turns that stop and make us think. Now, realize, Jesus truly is God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is our Savior. And again, by his very nature as being God, he cannot sin. And see, this is what the gospel shows us, just how strangely our God operates. Jesus, he lays aside all of his glory and all of his distinction, and he slips into the cold, muddy waters of the Jordan River, unannounced by anyone else. And he stands side beside with the other sinners. 
shoulder to shoulder with them. Now imagine this. Picture this in your mind. Hundreds of people coming out to John, standing in the Jordan River. Some of them are, you could say, run-of-the-mill sinners. Some of them are pretty serious sinners. And yet they seek one thing, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation back to God. And therefore, Jesus, he stands amongst them. Jesus is right in the middle amongst all those other sinners. He stands there with them, shoulder to shoulder. He humbly submits to this baptism. Now, this is the very first move in Jesus' public life, in his ministry. And it appears that he's looking as bad as he possibly can look. And see, that's the whole point. That's the irony of this entire story and the event. Jesus' first move in his public ministry is to stand shoulder to shoulder with us as sinners in solidarity with us. He stands with us in order to heal us and therefore save us. That's why this is such a phenomenal event. This baptism of Jesus Christ is something that we cannot take for granted or gloss over. I would argue the baptism of Jesus Christ is just as powerful as his birth as well as his death. Think of it. All the Old Testament prophets, how did they envision God? Always on a mountaintop, right? In all of his power, grandeur, and majesty. Where are we? Down in the valley below, separated by sin. Now, think that God now comes down from that and identifies with us, in solidarity with us. He comes down and enters into our condition of sin. Now, this is unheard of for the sinless God, going into the very depths of our condition and now standing shoulder to shoulder in solidarity with us. To do what? To bring God's love and mercy even to the very depths of our sinfulness. And that's what's happening here. That's why this is such a powerful moment. Notice John's response. He speaks out of the attitude of all the Old Testament prophets. And why not? John is considered the greatest of all the prophets. What did John proclaim before Jesus came? He said, I baptize you with water, but one that is coming mightier than I will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. Notice what he also says about Jesus. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will sweep the threshing floor and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, this is how John envisions God when he comes into this world. One is judge, fire, and wrath. And yet now God is kneeling before him. That's why John is so befuddled by this. That's why he says, I should be baptized by you. John thinks, or his vision of God is one of fire and wrath, fire and brimstone, that God will bring judgment upon the world when he does come. And yet, this is how God behaves, standing with sinners, showing his overwhelming love and mercy to them and for them. That's why this is a powerful way for Jesus to break onto the scene as he begins his ministry. Again, it appears that he made a terrible mistake by submitting to this baptism. But in all reality, now we know this is a great event. And Jesus sends a powerful message to us and the entire world. Now, at the heart of the matter, Jesus comes to forgive our sins. And how wonderful that he begins his ministry by sending a powerful message in this baptism. 
And in doing so, he doesn't have to utter one word at all. Remember, in all four of the Gospels, throughout Jesus' ministry, what is he constantly saying to us? You know, I have not come for the healthy, but I've come for the sick and the sinners. Notice, at the time of the Last Supper, Jesus takes the chalice and he says, Take this cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It'll be shed for you and for all your sins to be forgiven. See, this is why Jesus comes into the world. Jesus comes to repair us from our broken sinfulness. And therefore, he humbly stands with us, shoulder to shoulder, in solidarity, entering into our broken condition so that we can be healed and saved. See, that's why this baptism is such a powerful event. Now, with that in mind, go into the first reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah tells us exactly who Jesus is and what he will do. And he gives us these interesting metaphors. He says, A bruised reed he shall not break, a smoldering wick he shall not quench. Well, if we have a, a bruised reed or a reed that is cracked, what's the temptation? Break it off. It's useless. Throw it away. No. Instead, Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, he will repair everything and not cast us away. See, we are broken. We are broken because of our sin. And yet God comes into this world not to pronounce judgment upon us and cast us away. Instead, he comes to heal our brokenness. A smoldering wick he shall not quench. Well, we've all seen smoldering wicks on candles. You know, it's fighting to stay lit. So we say what? Well, it's helpless. We blow it out. Well, no. We are meant to always be on fire for and with God. But what does sin do? It kind of smolders that fire. So Jesus comes into this world and into our life. And he comes to nurture and stoke that flame of faith in our lives so that it always is burning brightly. A good analogy to help you understand this better is a very successful coach. Say, for example, Phil Jackson. He coached the Chicago Bulls, the LA Lakers. He won six to eight titles, coached elite players like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant. Now picture Phil Jackson sitting in the bleachers of your grade school basketball teams. You know, he's seen these little kids play, and they're not playing well. Well, what's his temptation? To get frustrated and burst out in anger. Start yelling, hey kid, you can't dribble worth a darn, or that's a terrible shot. But instead, if he really is a great coach, the very first thing he'll do, he'll bend down on his knee, and he'll get eye level to eye level with the kids. And then he will start to teach them. This is how you dribble. This is how you pass. This is how you shoot the ball for the express purpose of making them better players. See, this is what God is doing for us. He comes down to our level, eye level to eye level, shoulder to shoulder. He enters into our condition that is broken by sin, not to pass judgment, not to cast us away, but instead to heal and repair us. That's why Jesus says to John, Allow it for now, for that it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness righteousness, to set all things right, a right relationship with God. Sin loses right relationship, righteousness. Our relationship with God is broken because of sin. And see, this is what this baptism of Jesus is all about. That's why it's his very first act in his public ministry, to begin the healing process, 
to begin to restore righteousness between God and us. That's why at the very end of the story, the Holy Trinity is revealed. We don't see the Holy Trinity much in sacred scripture in the Bible. We only see it in powerful moments. And this is a powerful moment. We hear the voice of the Father. We see the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of the dove. We see Christ standing on the banks of the Jordan River. All three are present because they realize now the healing begins. Now the restoration process begins. And when does it end? When is righteousness complete? Through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now we have found righteousness through Christ. Now the right relationship that we once had with God in the garden is now restored. Now we all have a right relationship with God. And see, in the first few early years of our church, the apostles didn't understand this baptism. And yet later on, through prayer and understanding, they saw just how powerful this event was. That's why all four gospel writers made sure that they included it in their gospel. The baptism of Jesus Christ is not an embarrassment. No, on the contrary. Instead, it's an incredibly powerful statement that Jesus makes. He stands shoulder to shoulder with us. He enters into our condition in order to heal and repair, to set all things right so that we might have righteousness with God and ourselves. And that, my friends, is something worth rejoicing in. And may the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ rest upon you always.